first tale of the evening will be Notes of a Note-Taking Man by Paul Flack and will be read by Andrew Baguley. Paul grew up in Stevenage, Hertfordshire. His work has also appeared in the Mechanics Institute Review. Amongst themes that have emerged in his short stories and novels, such as Nature and Travel Writing, are characters his wife finds scary. Andrew worked for the council in the 70s, acted in the 80s, was in business in the 90s and noughties, and is now back acting in the 2020s. He may return to the council for the 2020s. His most recent project was a German TV adaptation of a Rosamund Pilcher novel where he played an unsuitable date. Andrew. Notes of a Note-Taking Man by Paul Flack. I had been observing a young woman and decided to call her Teacup. She often sat at a table beside a mirrored pillar in a coffee bar I visited before work. I also had a preferred table, which happened to face the pillar, about 15 feet away. This is how she became a feature in my daily journal, though it wasn't her alone that triggered my interest. Ten minutes after her arrival each morning, a man would join her. He wore a wedding ring. She did not. I resisted giving him a name for months. He was older than her, by 15 years at least. She was about 30, possibly less, and there was no chance of them being father and daughter. Not by the way she looked into his face, which was not an impressive one. Instead, I began to wait outside the cafe and time my entry so that I could follow her in and learn more about her. She only drank tea, for instance, with just a little milk. I arranged it so that two or three customers were between us in the queue. More than once I rushed up to the counter to catch the sound of her voice, but she was too softly spoken. When she didn't, she chose a cheese sandwich, or an egg and tomato roll, or a beaker of fruit. I noted down all these particulars. If she'd ever wanted to know when she'd had a cheese sandwich over the last few months, I could have told her. But we never spoke. His strongest feature was his hair. It was thick and grey. I wasn't going to call him silver. That would be too complimentary. The shade was more dingy anyway. So I decided on grit something rough that gathered by the curb, something the course of rain would one day carry down the drain. I made an inventory of Teacup's wardrobe. Of course, this was just her office wear, but I could imagine those winter boots having some weekend outings too. Though formal, her style was elegant. Grit, meanwhile, looked like a haggard parent. That much we had in common. Our own children had fled. They're at the never-calling, never-visiting stage. It's a healthy phase, just temporary, though it's been a while now. Victor's getting over his inferiority complex and hopes coming off the tablets. Or so Flo tells me. Sometimes grit and teacup hardly talk 
as if being in the presence of each other were enough. She's always looking for eye contact, often smiling, while he's less certain, sometimes scowling away. But he's there, and she's there. No words needed. It's never been like that with Flo and me. She's always busy, lots of do-gooding to do, church this and that, usually with Jan. I hardly see her. Teacup was a punctual person, much like myself. It occurred to me once, when I reviewed her arrival times in my journal, that she had the advantage of a well-performing train service, much better than Grips. I remember once when, she was when he was particularly late and Teacup reached for her phone to perform some urgent texting. When he did arrive and sat down with his latte, I felt like going over and complaining. Both Teacup and I had schedules to keep to. He simply wasn't in her class. Our class. Now that I knew their routines inside the cafe, I began to wonder about their routines outside of it. I'm interested in people, you see. Take our new neighbour, for instance. We knew nothing about him, yet he suddenly appeared in our lives. You have to be on your guard. So I followed him to his place of work to verify his story. Well, why shouldn't I? It's a free country. Likewise, I decided it was time to follow Grit to his office, a Norwegian bank near St. Paul's. Naturally, I wanted to know more, so two evenings later, I zigzagged through the crowds to find which train we took from Liverpool Street. Platform 8, destination Stansted. Next day, I bought a ticket for the full journey, but he left the train at Bishop's Stortford. <laughs> I knew it was a risk following him up the hill, but I used one of Victor's baseball caps and figured there was no reason that Grit would recognise my overcoat. He entered a close of mid-1960s homes, similar to our own. Under lamplight, I noted the address. I could find the postcode from the internet. It wouldn't be a long letter. It would be addressed to just Mr. I reminded myself of other plans. Use a computer terminal and printer at the local library. Use gloves. Don't lick the stamp. Even your saliva can give you away. And the content of the letter? I would ponder that on the train. He shouldn't be allowed to ruin the lives of two women. Teacup deserved better. Maybe that's what Teacup had decided too. When a woman has a radical haircut, she intends changing more than her appearance. Not that anyone beyond myself, amongst the regulars at the cafe, detected the new Teacup. Umbrella wasn't the sort of guy who could offer her the love interest he was looking, she was looking for. He had a penchant for bow ties, while Laptop had probably never even noticed her. But what would Grit think? Before he arrived, I could see her catching her image in the mirrored pillar. In truth, her haircut was appalling. Her shoulder-length locks had been hacked into a page-boy style. I could have modelled it better myself. What a shame I couldn't have had one of the tresses swept up off the hairdresser's floor. No, that would be wrong. I didn't want to possess her. I wanted to set her free. Anonymously. 
I saw her face rise as Grit approached. She breathed in with apprehension as he set down his coffee. He didn't say anything. Then he grinned widely. What an actor he was. Practiced liar. Though surprised, he obviously said the right words, and she was lit with happiness. Yet they never touched, never kissed. Perhaps Teacup was a stepdaughter from a previous marriage, or a niece. But that didn't explain the regularity of their meetings. Before posting the letter, I discussed some of my observations, uh, minus the names, with Flo. What do you want from this? She said. I didn't mention the letter. From the lovers? Not nothing. Then why not leave them to it? But what is it? I don't understand. Are you sure you're not after something here? Certainly not. He must be blackmailing her. Extortion of some kind. Something's not right about it. I posted the letter. All I wrote was, leave the young woman in London alone. You have been warned. Given the usual service, the letter should have arrived on a Friday morning. Given the trek from Bishop Stortford and the early departure required, he probably opened it on the Friday evening. Monday morning. Teacup appeared as usual. I was waiting in my cafe at the preferred table. She sat at her established one. As Grit's usual arrival time came and passed, I felt my gut tightening with attention. Then he emerged. His actions were as normal, his stony countenance, a slight crack of a smile in greeting her, then sitting down as if the moment had no special significance. I had my journal open and pen ready for anything to note. He didn't even look away and scowl that day. I was ready for her eyes to fill and for her to rush away, but she maintained that transfixed gaze that had no logical justification. Then he left on time and she sipped her tea. Tuesday. Teacup was late and had nothing to eat. The pattern I saw in my journal was that she ate later in the week, probably having something healthy at home earlier when self-discipline was easier to enforce on Mondays, Tuesdays, and sometimes Wednesdays. Then something different happened. She took a free newspaper from her bag and read for a period that went over the arrival time of Grits, the threshold time for Grits' arrival. There was no reaching the phone or scanning through the window. What were the possibilities? Grit packing his case in Bishop's Fortress? He'd slashed his wrists over the dilemma and crisis? Probably not. If she knew either of these, she wouldn't be there. Wednesday, the same. Thursday, ditto. Friday, he must be on holiday, playing dad. Monday again, gritless. Tuesday again, no change in her. I expected a more intellectual newspaper at least. Wednesday, I began to miss him more than she appeared to. <laughs> Thursday, Umbrella tried a beaker of fruit, maybe a digestive problem. I'm down to detailing marginal points like this now. 
have I ruined my own entertainment? <laughs> Friday, no teacup. On Saturday, I found that Flo had sit, slipped out of bed. Another church fundraiser with Jan. I was obliged to make an appearance. I met them at noon in a marquee beside the bandstand. The usual rustic soup, homemade cake, fair trade tea. I rested back in my chair. Someone's looking at you, said Flo. I didn't respond. It was a comment meant for Jan, even if Flo directed it at me. Then she tilted her head and said it again. Behind you, she said. Robust type. I turned around. Grit was two tables away. His arms were folded and he was looking straight at me as if he'd totally forgotten his carrot cake in front of him. Who is it? said Flo. It's Grit. Is that a Scandinavian name? I don't know. I have to go. Where? Introduce us. She waved at him with window clean theatricality. Grit continued to glare. As I left and received more of his stare, I saw that on his table there was an exercise book of the brand I use and a biro. I rushed home and locked the doors. He would already know where we lived. He'd probably followed me from the train station, and now he knew who my wife was. I checked the windows were closed. Flo could be in danger. He might kill her. <coughs> then I relaxed. She was fully insured. <laughs> it would be impossible for him to prove I wrote the letter. Then I saw an envelope on the doormat. No addressee. I opened it. He had returned the letter. The first line, leave the young woman in London alone, had been scored out, scored out. The second line remained, you've been warned. I shredded the letter, then I buried the shreds in the garden. The, the journal was next, uh, uh, three journals in fact. All those notes and insights into teacup and grit had to be disposed of immediately. This time I used fire. As I watched the flames die down on the garage floor, I considered how Teacup had sat in the cafe knowing that Grit was about to follow me to my office and then to Waterloo and to my home. They must have seen me in the mirrored pillar. I swept up the ashes and scattered them around the garden. All that would remain would be my envy. Hopefully, Grit and Teacup could find a resolution to what drew them together. Perhaps they already had before I intervened. Six hours later, Flo pressed the doorbell. Her key was useless against the bolted front door. Her face was flushed after another soiree at Jan's. Your admirer came over, she said. You spoke to him? Reckons he knows you from somewhere. I didn't know. Then he wondered if it was from his army days. I laughed. <laughs> you in the army. <laughs> he sounds tough. You didn't tell him my name? No. Jan did. <laughs> and where you work. He wrote it all in his little notebook. Are you okay? Do you need your inhaler? <laughs> you know, I think he said he would see you soon. Sit down. You look as if you need a drink. <laughs> I know I do. <laughs> Thank you.
you, Andrew. Our second story of the evening will be The Mushroom Hunters by James Field and will be read by Claren Cronin. James is the editor of a children's literary journal, Lampland. He currently finds himself in London where he is reconciliatory. His typing speed is 65 words per minute. He has 27 Steam achievement points and he has recently become comfortable with swearing around his family. Claren, trained at Drama School London, uh, stage work includes Susan in The Future by Pentameters, Tanya in Paper Thin, and Eva in Top Love. Uh, screen credits include Tiz in Fauna, uh, Teresa in Making It Mean Something, and The Bill. She is also an experienced voiceover artist. Claren! The Mushroom Hunters by James Field. Two brothers stayed up in the forest longer than the rest, Renato and Aldo. They were children, not good for anything else. They knew the name of every flower and had given new names to every rock. When the others sold their cows and abandoned the hillside to work in the lichen spread of factories on the valley floor, the forest washed back across the slopes like water from a bucket. Without cattle to nip away every shoot, it sprang up with all the energy of seeds long watered. They were young when the forest was young. They trapped animals and picked fruit. They welcomed deer back to the forest and boar. They dreamt of the day the wolves of North Italy would visit their hillside and settle there too. One day, they found a hollow where mushrooms grew. The mushrooms tasted of wood and damp leaves. They were delicious, better with each successive autumn. It was for mushrooms they returned to the forest when work and family claimed the time they used to give to the wild. The trees of the forest grew higher and broader, and eventually the brothers lost sight of each other amongst the trunks. But each read the other's tracks, so they knew who had beaten them whenever they found the mushroom hollow empty. On discovering that the mushrooms had been gathered, the brother who'd lost cursed or smiled according to his mood or hunger. Ted met the elder brother, Aldo, on the day he married Aldo's daughter. I don't think Nora had been trying to keep them apart, but that's how it happened. Aldo was, by then, a local success, owning a factory in the valley that made scientific lenses. But he was still something of a weekend embarrassment to his family, never quite having lost the wildness of his young years. Ted told me that there was something of the green man about him, of Cocoonin or Baloo. And yet, he had grown old while the forest remained young. It was winter when Nora first took Ted to her father's hillside home. 
There was no talk of mushrooms. They walked with Aldo in the snow, and he pointed out the animal tracks, sang folk songs, mused on some World War II vehicles a local landowner had grouped in a field. Ted could speak Italian only poorly, but Aldo wove simple phrases eloquently. His laughter shook snow from the branches. Ted realised his wife's professed embarrassment for her father was much exaggerated. In knee-high drifts, she kept to her father's footsteps like the squire of Wenceslas. Her knowledge of the woods equaled his. That the forest around them was no more than 50 years old astounded Ted. It covered every hill in sight and sunk in the snow seemed not just ancient, but sleepily eternal. <coughs> Everything is old for you, children, Aldo said. You feel nothing can be otherwise. But this happens when you don't look. Ted often walked with Aldo after that, but never when he went for mushrooms. Nora assured him it wasn't personal. The brothers alone knew where the mushrooms grew, she said, and Ted marvelled that nobody else had come across this mucky treasure. A town of 10,000 never looked up from their TVs, while two brothers elbowed between trees in the long light of morning, locked in a decades-old contest for mushrooms. It wouldn't even occur to them that mushrooms were there to be found, Nora murmured. It's his great secret. He goes to the bar in the corner and talks lamb and flowery. He's generous with the advice about growing aubergines and tracking deer, but keeps the mushrooms to himself. Have you ever thought of following him? Ted asked, regretting it immediately. Of course not. And don't you think about it either, because he'll know. He can tell if you walked across a rug with your shoes on. He carries that stick in case he comes across a wolf, not to stay upright, and I'm not sure he wouldn't turn it on you. Wolves? Ted prickled with an ignorant thrill of wonder. Ah, oh, the last was killed a hundred years ago, but it's always been his dream that he might see one. I think he carries the stick as a sort of willful act of summoning and to club one dead when it appears. Papa always says that in the forest you kill as well as dream, but he'd be the first to tell you there's nothing to fear from wolves. Anyway, it's not about preparing for a fight, it's about talismans, wonderment. Nothing comes of it but it enriches the world. Even putting it into words like this spoils it. It's the same with mushrooms. So stop asking, eh? She slapped Ted's hand and he, chastened, promised not to walk so clumsily over family fairy stories. Aldo always fried the mushrooms in butter with salt and garlic. As often as not, he served them just like that with bread. Sometimes, if he left them unattended, Nora tossed them with tagliatelle or stirred them into a risotto. At this, Aldo feigned anger, but happily wolfed down the meal, expressing regret that he never pushed himself even so far as to prepare these simple dishes. 
Mushrooms, drumming up through the soil, set the rhythm of the years. Ted was there in weeks of rain or full moon, and in those days, Aldo left his boots by the door to set out early every morning. Once, he came back with nearly two kilograms of the thick rib leaves, but generally the trove weighed, weighed half that. Often enough, he came back with nothing at all. Renato had beaten him to it. Those times he'd stroll up laughing and speaking instead of the morning forest of the cuckoo. He praised his brother's wiles and cursed his own late rising. You'd have thought he'd just returned from a game of chess the way he cheerily discussed the strategy and strengths of his opponent. Ted was surprised he'd never sat up at midnight to watch for the mushrooms as they sprouted, and Aldo said that while he hadn't the patience, he wouldn't put it past Renato. Sometimes Aldo would have unbroken weeks of success in which he'd laugh with Nora over Skype and she'd implore her father to maintain a varied diet. She had no real cause to worry. Aldo couldn't maintain such a streak for long. And even when he did, he'd eventually let the mushrooms go uncollected so his brother could have a taste. For Aldo, there was nothing as sad as a season passing without tasting its bloom. And he wouldn't impose that on anyone. Renato wasn't so soft, though. And there were autumns and springs when Aldo went without a single mushroom. Worse than the umpteenth day when he returned with nothing, were the days he returned with just one. It had been torn up and left in the middle of the ragged, soily circle, just to make clear it hadn't been missed, but left. Aldo dried these sigils and kept them in a number of jars on a shelf in the kitchen. Ted told me that sometimes he found Aldo holding one of the jars as if gauging the weight for a bet. Do they not ever just share what they find? Ted asked his wife one day. Oh no, she said. They're past that now. The contests, everything. Have I lost them like that despite the losing streaks? How come I haven't met his brother yet? He won't, probably. What? Why? When did they last see each other? Oh, long before I was born. You're kidding. Where does he live? The valley over. I mean, I say they haven't seen each other since before I was born, but really, they see each other every day. They see each other more as they get older. Papa will return from a hunt and say, his knee's acting up. He can tell from his brother's prints in the earth. If he was in a hurry or taking his time, Papa can tell. If he was careless, breaking branches, Papa would say, something's on his mind. It's extraordinary, but it's also too easy. Let's them forget they stopped talking. In the autumn of last year, Ted's father-in-law went through an extraordinary winning streak. So many mushrooms, he was drying them in batches, a process normally reserved for the single finds. He was freezing handfuls too, though he was seldom happy with the taste afterwards. 
I know that by this point, Ted had long since stopped viewing the mushroom hunt as a healthy pursuit, but he honoured his old promise and said nothing. He did have mischief in mind, though, when he pointed out that Aldo had gone the season without laying off for his brother to have a share. Oh, Renato will be fine, Aldo said, smiling widely as he emptied his sock drawer to make more space for drying his harvest. I love my brother more than I can say, but uh, there are some things I think he never learned. He can have a thin season, and I a fat one. I think I've earned it. As he spoke, there was all the warmth in his tone that he usually reserved for his brother. Ted couldn't hold his eye for the fervour. Towards the end of that week, Aldo served a breakfast of only meat and cheese. So, you finally let him have them, eh? Ted said lightly. No. No, in fact, uh, he beat me to them uh, this morning. Took him longer than usual, but uh, he beat me. To tell the truth, uh, I think there have been periods this year he hasn't been visiting the woods. Something may have been keeping him away. That cheese is from my cousin's farm in the mountains. Please, try some. On the day before Ted and Nora were due to leave, Aldo returned with one more basket full. Despite himself, Ted told me he was happy for a last taste of mushrooms. Nora met Aldo on the slope leading up to the house and went to take the basket from her father's hands. Wonderful, Papa! A last mushroom supper! No! No! Her father cried, twisting a little to shield the basket with his body. No! They followed Aldo inside to find him spreading the mushrooms out on the table, turning each one and inspecting it closely. He had his field guide open beside him, which they'd never seen Aldo take down from the shelf. Apparently coming to a conclusion, he sighed and slumped into a chair. What's wrong, Papa? They're poison. All poison. What? How can that be? They look identical to the others. They don't. And these kill within hours. I found them this morning where I always find mushrooms. But one colony doesn't just replace another overnight, Ted said. No, they don't. These were brought from somewhere else and spread about. They grow in the valley over. We used to leave each other messages in the forest. Cross twigs, looped blades of grass. You can spell out a lot in such ways to someone who can read. This message isn't very subtle, Papa, Nora said, taking her father's hand. No, indeed, he said. He has called a time on our game. I think I quite lost my appetite. But he hadn't lost his appetite. And Ted woke that night to the smell of garlic and butter. He found Aldo at the kitchen table. 
A bottle of Prosecco at his elbow was nearly empty. The basket of poison mushrooms, which had been left by the back door, was empty. The plate on the table was empty. Aldo picked up a crust of bread to wipe at a glaze of butter. Why would you? Ted began to say, but his voice broke. I couldn't help myself, Aldo said, pouring another glass of wine. Ted turned and left the kitchen, climbed the stairs to wake his wife. by Barry McKinley, to be read by Paul Clark. Barry was nominated in 2009 for Best New Play in the Irish Theatre Awards for his play Elysium, Nevada. He is currently editing a collection of short stories drawn from his late 1970s London diaries. He attends the National Film School in Dublin, where he's studying for an MA in screenwriting. Paul trained at the Central School and always got cast as a baddie or a monster. Or, for a bit of variety, a bad monster. Now a photographer, technologist and occasional performer, he finds the League stories islands of relative sanity in his life, which is worrying. <laughs> Paul. Musique by Barry McKinley. London, August 1979. Mac and Kevin stood in the Young Ireland ballroom and studied the strange gyrating creatures. There was nothing even remotely attractive to the eye in the posturing and the prancing and the posing. But that didn't matter, because Mac and Kevin hadn't come for the dancing, nor to pick up heavy girls and transport them into a state of blissful matrimony. They were certainly not there for the music. They were looking for one particular inbred face in a vast sea of many. One, two, one, two, three! said the Queen of Irish country music as she dropped the microphone stand to its lowest notch. She wore a sequin jacket with a collar so big it looked like someone had tried to slice off her head with a boomerang. <laughs> testing, testing, testing! The dance hall in Harlesden was run by a pea-faced priest called Father Hegarty, a breeder of hard-working man-horses. He poked and prodded his sires into action on Friday and Saturday nights. The whole romantic enterprise was based on the fact that half the paddies in London hoped to marry a fat little nurse from Mayo, a flush-cheeked, bosomy creature with a forgiving nature and a functional knowledge of fellatio. 
It was more grapple than dance, uh, with men and women drunkenly whirling about the floor like disparate, desperate items of clothing in a tumble dryer. Mix and match. The Queen of Irish Country Music stood in front of an old slide projection of an Irish street scene circa 1950. A retarded population, scared in equal measure by God and fashion. <laughs> their clothes made from rags dipped in bog water, their cars the mechanical biscuit tins inherited from the English. Morris Cowleys, assorted Cambridges and Rileys, and the never-faithful Austin 10. What do you call a British car owner? A fucking pedestrian. <laughs> Max said something, and Kevin nodded. They both focused on the same ugly, misshapen man on the other side of the dance floor. Mandy McKenna. It was not a pretty sight. He had pork chop ears and a beak for a nose. He was the brother you preferred not to talk about. The uncle you rarely saw. The child you hoped you'd never have. He was the fetus that somehow made it past the coat hanger. He nodded at Mac and Kevin and then stepped out onto the warm maple floor where most of his business transactions took place. Her Royal Highness, the Queen of Twang, tightened the knob on the microphone stand and then snapped her fingers. With an amplified clickety-clack, the band pranced onto the stage, all indigo costumes and fat calloused hands. They looked less like musicians and, and more like the stokers on a queer cruise ship. Some old spit was drained from the water key on the alto sax and a mewling tone was pulled from the sagging lung of a button accordion. Yeah! roared the Queen. Grand! The crowd roared back. If you thought the worst thing the Irish ever did to London was to put a bomb in Harrods, then you have never heard Mary McCrory's mystical men, <laughs> or Danny Driscoll and his Mullingar moonshiners, or Chipper O'Neill and the boys from the barracks as they gang-raped the Nashville songbook. Testing, testing, one, two, three! Mandy had taken his name from the Irish tradition of calling a man after his chosen profession. For instance, Martin Minibus Brennan, the plumber Foley, Whoremaster Dooley, and so on. Mandy was a retailer of Mandrax pills, what, what some newspaper referred to as Randy Mandy's and the Americans called Queens. He sold them for a quid apiece. Mac and Kevin waded through the roughnecks in their brine nylon shirts and pushed through the stench of brill cream original that hung in the air like mustard gas. Testing, testing, seven, eight, nine! The pair cut deeper through the crowd into the ugly heart of the mob where the fight was most likely to start. Well, lads, Mandy said when they came to face, when they came face to face. Well, 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 well. He was a fountain of wells. Money was handed over and Mandy yelled through cupped hands, You'll have to go and see Pawdy now. Pawdy has the gear. You know Pawdy, don't you? And everyone knew Pawdy. 
Pawdy hailed from some pit in County Roscommon, where they made pies out of sick children. <laughs> he talked through a scattering of crooked teeth, and his words came out in short, mangled sentences. Mandy disappeared into a hedgerow of corduroy jackets and shiny-ass gabardine pants. Kevin pushed forward, too, until he was swallowed, but Mac found his path blocked by a giant in a dun-coloured three-piece suit. The monster wore a necktie with a knot the size of a clenched fist. His clenched fists were the size of bowling balls. The only reason he had developed opposable thumbs was because he needed them to operate a shuffle. <laughs> Excuse me, Mac said, but the monster refused to budge. What are you doing here? The monster bellowed. And it was a reasonable question because Mac did not look like he belonged anywhere. Ramon's jeans, sharkskin jacket, and a knockoff Westwood t shirt that said, Heroin only kills the weak. His hair was spiked and prickly to the touch, his eyes darkened by sleepless nights and bad romantic judgment. He always carried a knife. A tortured note rang out from the stage, and the three piece drum kit kicked into life. Went the hi hat. I ask you a question, said the monster. The bass guitar climbed to a cruising altitude where it would remain for the rest of the night, repeating the exact same phrase, something that sounded like the words Humpty Dumpty, Humpty Dumpty, over and over again. Kish, kish, Humpty Dumpty, kish, kish. The queen of Irish country music started to sing, and her Donegal accent crept through the air, a dissonant flatulence, gassing a song that had four <coughs> words, three chords, and no earthly reason for existence. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you again! Mac looked up into the eyes of the sideburned sociopathic sister shagger and saw a walnut-sized brain and a 40-watt bulb with one illuminated thought. When the band starts playing, the fighting starts! <laughs> for one short moment, Mac felt a twinge of sorrow, not for the monster and the terrible tragedy that was about to befall him, but for the loss of his own musical youth. Punk rock arrived in 76 and departed in 77. The anthems could now only be heard after midnight, Radio echoes, zombie love calls, rippled with static. The opening scream of neat, 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 mixed with the broken china cup piano of piss factory. White noise rising over the airwaves and disappearing into the darkness of time. Punk was dead. And yet this shite was alive. <laughs> Out with the new and in with the old. There was no justice in the world of song. Answer me! roared the monster, wrapping Mac's chest with a bowling ball fist. Some frothy saliva spun out from his face, a liquid question mark that accompanied his violent curiosity. Kish, kish, humpty dumpty, kish, kish! The din was gnawing into Mac's head like a hungry rat. He thought of the chip shop in Wood Green and the jukebox full of rock classics. Yeah, Johann Sebastian Zeppelin and Ludwig van Bachmann Turner Overdrive. <laughs> and the little Greek girl behind the counter who used the phrase, My love. In every single sentence, in a soft voice that 
sometimes gave him an erection. <laughs> a stiffness of diction, you might say. <laughs> will, will you like salt on that, my love? And then she would dip her delicate hand into the heated glass case that contained the thick, juicy sausage of kings. A squirt of ketchup on your savoir, my love? One day, he might ask her out. But he had very little exposure to Greek women and was concerned about their genetic predisposition towards facial hair. <laughs> One did not want to fall asleep beside Melina Mercury and wake up next to Freddie Mercury. <laughs> I'm talking to you! Howled the monster. The crowd pressed in and the knife sneaked out. It was an old American shore snap with a black tar handle and a sweet stiletto blade, not yet extended. It was easily concealed in a hand. Mac looked past the 40-watt fight bulb into the shallow pool of the big man's knowledge. He saw a grey soup filled with Republican songs, decades of the rosary, pictures of Elvis Presley and Padre Pio, secret homosexual longings, recipes for rasher sandwiches, Gaelic football scores in 62, and last but by no means least, the list of fake names used in different labour exchanges for fraudulent claims. Kish, kish, humpty dumpty, kish, kish. Mac pressed the button and the blade swung out, a sharp secret hidden by the passing movement of bodies. He had already picked his target. The monster's belly looked like a laundry sack filled with wet cement. It heaved, swayed and rolled from side to side. It rubbed against a rayon shirt, generating static, forcing short hairs out through buttonholes, where they became charged tendrils, arcing and sparking against a belt buckle the size of a hubcap. <laughs> Matt smiled. The monster opened his mouth to say something loud, noxious and fearsome. But the words never came. Instead, his eyes turned to water, his knees bent and his shoulders folded in like butterfly wings. He descended into the quicksand of pain with a twisted face and quivering lips, and when he hit the ground, it was with a sodden thump. And Mac was perplexed because the knife still hung at his side, bright and shining and clean as a whistle. The belly of the beast was still intact with no guts, no gore spilled on the floor. Something else entirely had brought about the dramatic collapse of Goliath. A boot had cut through the tangle of chances and dancers and slammed into the monster's shin, crushing it like a one-stem vase caught in the path of a ball-peen hammer. The boot belonged to Kevin. His face bobbed into view for a second, bright, tight and energised. Somebody bash Dinny! The call went out. Tell Danny somebody bash Dinny! Danny and Dinny, a, a pair of brothers or, or a comedy duo. A woman screamed, the glass shattered. Who bashed Dinny? The crowd searched itself for the enemy within, for the basher of Dinny. Bouncers took to the floor, four abreast, like minesweepers. Father Hegarty, his bald head, speckled with rainbow dots from the mirror ball, put down a bottle of warm 7-Up, rolled up his black sleeves and waded into the mayhem. Kevin's hand reached out and dragged Mac through an opening in the swirling chaos. Pordy leaned against a column, not even vaguely interested in the war waging all around him. 
When he saw Mac and Kevin approach, he pulled a plastic bag from his pocket. Where's Port the Fuck? he said, making sense only to himself. His hand touched Kevin's hand, and the deal was done with speed, accuracy, and near invisibility. Mac and Kevin headed for the exit. The queen of Irish country music crooned into the vortex of raging testosterone, a tale of happy girlhood spent in buttercup pastures. The accordion player stepped nervously back from the edge of the stage. The drummer scrunched up and made himself a smaller target for the flying bottles. Kish, kish, humpty dumpty, kish, kish. Mac and Kevin made it to the door without further adventure, and just as they hit the fresh outside air, young lady arrived, the original of the species, the puffy, little, full-breasted Mayo nurse herself, all handbag and hairspray and hope. When she caught sight of two young men departing, two fine catches, she moaned in abject disappointment. Unable to contain her woe, she watched them go into the black London night, and her voice was small and helpless, the involuntary words almost lost in the racket of the riot coming from inside the ballroom. Ah, lads, you're not leaving already. <laughs>